All right, this is Seeking Excellence Book Club. Welcome to episode number two. As always, I'm your host, your favorite book club host in the entire world, Nathan Crankfield. Thanks for joining us again. Or again. <laughs> again. Today, again. I don't know, man. I'm losing my mind here. But we got episode number two, chapter number two. This is a good one. So at the beginning of this chapter, we see here that the patient has become a Christian, which you would think that's not good. And apparently a way that Screwtape opens it up, Wormwood is kind of tripping out because he's like, yo, this dude became a Christian. And we can all think of that in our own lives, right? I, I warn a lot of people when they are at retreats or conferences that I speak at that a lot of times we have these conversion events, right? We have these kind of emotional highs that we go through when we are converting, when we're first like getting to know the Lord. Maybe the Lord is really, really wooing our hearts and winning us over. And so we are, you know, kind of going through this exciting period. It's kind of like a honeymoon phase of your faith, right? And so Screwtape, being more seasoned, recognizes that, hey, there's no need to be super worried about this. Your guy's now believing or professing that he's a Christian, but it's still so early on. And he points this out here in just this first paragraph. He says, there is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. So this points to this really interesting reality that just when we convert, right, when we start to have this conversion of heart, and I think so many of us have experienced this, you know, me as an actual convert to the faith, somebody who was of a different faith tradition and became Catholic, are many of you who may have been older adult reverts, right, when you start to revert from the faith. One of the reasons why I think he specifically says, why Screwtape specifically says hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed is that I think adult converts have this extra, um, you know, fence or obstacle to overcome, which is their pride. And pride is very real and and kind of natural when we grow up, right? I think we've all experienced this. You know, I'm 30 now, and the way that I hold on to my opinions and values now at 30 is much tighter than I did when I was 20, which was almost, you know, a world of difference from when I was 10 because I didn't really have any or believe anything. Stick to what you know. Um, I think you become more of what you are as you get older. And old dogs can learn new tricks. I think old people can change, right? Older people, uh, more seasoned humans, if you will. But it does definitely get harder. And I've seen that in my own life just as I've watched other people get older. As I've gotten older, is that you get more who you are when you're older, right? We've all met really happy grandparents and great-grandparents. We've all met really grumpy grandparents, or at least people who are in that age, right? 70, 80, 90 years old. You see people who are extremely joyful at 105, and you see people who are 62 and miserable and just grumpy every day that they're alive. And so you have this mix, and I think people just get more solidified in who they are when they get older. That's my personal belief. And so you see in this, so I think that's a huge thing about why does Screwtape still have a lot of optimism about winning over the patient? It's because of the fact that he's an adult, and he says, here later on, all the habits, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. And this is true for any convert, a convert of any age, that you're going to still have certain mental habits. Let's say a mental habit like lusting after men or women with your eyes. Uh, mental habits of judging other people for everything that they think, say, and do. Um, you have bodily habits, right, of lust and of gluttony, of laziness, of sloth, right? And so we have all these different habits even just going different places or over drinking or whatever it might be. Like it's interesting that when we convert, we don't just automatically have this, 
this this miraculous we don't we don't we're not transfigured right we don't have this like innate or instant transformation that totally changes us from who we were to who we are becoming or who we are now right a lot of us don't experience that some people have overnight changes and um are freed from the chains and bonds of sin with any type of addiction and things like that that does happen but it it's it's not the norm right it's it's very very rare and so he gets into some details of what you can kind of do um, leaning on the neighbors, right? He talks about leaning on the neighbors pretty heavily. And I love this, what he ends up talking about. Um, and this kind of continues on what we learned about yesterday in, in day one about making sure that he's kind of confused and distracted, right? That, that continues to be a theme here in chapter number two. Um, it's this idea of distraction. There's kind of three main points we'll hit on in today's chapter. But he says, make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people the next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter. Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. He has an idea of Christians in his mind. So we come up with this idea of what it means to be Christian. And a lot of times that can be based on whoever it was that kind of discipled us or led us into the faith, right? It could be like a Father Mike for some people that that I think can idolize Father Mike to a certain sense. And then they go back. And I think even Father Mike has expressed this fear before. They go back to their parish and they might have just a very normal guy as a parish priest that is no Father Mike Schmitz that isn't nearly as fit or as good looking or as funny or as charming or as you know intellectual as Father Mike is. And they start to think, this isn't a real priest. This isn't as good. Like what I got at Seek or what I got at this conference or wherever I met him or wherever you saw any other amazing priest, right? We start to think like, oh, this guy isn't as good. And you start to question everything because the devil has convinced you to start judging your neighbor or your priest or whoever it is. And you also think of people who are very distracted. We think about people who are uh, uh, angered by the presence of children at Mass, right? Because there's such a distraction. Something I think to say on that, on this idea of distraction is, I learned this very early on in my life because I used to get kind of frustrated at distractions and kids or whatever at mass myself. And I'll never forget being with Deacon Derek. I don't even remember his last name and he's now a priest. So he's now Father Derek, but he was Deacon Derek at the time. And we were in the car, me, him and my friend Mike. And we were driving back from like uh, CUA or George Washington. I can't remember um, university to the Mount, to Mount St. Mary's where I went after doing like a men's panel for this Catholic center. And so we come, we do the men's panel, and we're leaving, and he had to do evening prayer, I think it was, in the Liturgy of the Hours. And uh, he was talking, we were like, yo, do you want us to stop talking? Do you want us to turn the music off or whatever? And he was like, no, 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 don't worry. He didn't say this cockily, but, you know, or like with a lot of pride, but he was just like, no, don't worry. Like, I do this regularly. Like, I'm kind of like I'm a professional, you know? And we're like, okay, you know, whatever. To both of us, we're like, you know, we're in this phase of our lives where we need, like, serious silence. We need... Um, to be focused, right, in order to really pray. And he's like, no, I got this. Don't worry. And he does his evening prayer and then comes back and joins our conversation or whatever. And I remember having this own journey in my my spiritual life, my own prayer life, where it was like, for a time, I needed to be super silent. And then it was like I could be in a loud church with screaming babies and really, really focus and go deep in the conversation with the Lord during Mass because I was praying regularly without the distractions. But if the only time you pray is at Mass on Sunday and it's loud, then yes, you're not going to be able to focus and what the devil likes to get you to do is blame other people for your inability to focus. And so he likes to take your own bad decisions and the fruits of those decisions 
and blame them on other people because then you don't ever take responsibility for them. This is why one of the fundamentals, one of the foundations of excellence is ownership because you have to take responsibility for those things. And when you do that, then you're going to be able to make changes in those things. All right, so jumping back into the book, I love this line. He says, keep everything hazy in his mind now, and you will have all eternity wherein to amuse yourself by producing in him the peculiar, the peculiar kind of clarity which hell affords. Man, I don't want to have that type of clarity. But this is what's interesting, right? Is the eternal, eternal life, right? Eternity is really, really long time. That's the only thing I know about eternity is that it's forever, right? It's super long. It's pretty crazy. I guess it's not the only thing I know about eternity. I know a few other things. We'll get to those. But it's interesting that he says that there's this peculiar, that word is giving me heck. I'll tell you what, that, that word is giving me hell right now. Peculiar kind of clarity, which hell affords. Because in eternity, we're going to be like the demons. The demons fall. I think a lot of people wonder about this when it comes to like the fall of Satan. One of my theories that I have on the fall of Satan and why is it, why it's permanent, right? Why is Lucifer's rejection of God permanent? Like they didn't get a chance to repent. To me, it's because they had an exceptional, and not just me, this is like, I, I don't know the, Emily's over there probably rolling around because I'm, I'm just like speaking like a goober right now, but the church, I believe, generally teaches. I don't think it's like strong church teachings you have to believe, but the church generally teaches that Lucifer being so close to God, the rejection of God was just wholehearted, right? Whereas we are kind of, we can't see God, we can't touch God, we can't like face-to-face converse with God. Lucifer was able to do that. And so because the devils and demons were, the devil and the demons were so close, they had they had this type of clarity and they still said no. They still said, I will not serve. That's what made it permanent. As where ours, we get chances for redemption because um, one, we're a little dumber, right? We're lower beings. And then two, we don't have that full clarity that the demons, the angels and, and now demons have. But we will have it in hell, which is part of what makes it hell because we're going to see all the times that this stuff was happening in our lives. That's my belief. I think that we're going to see and understand and know all the little times where we rejected God in our lives if we were end up in hell, which hopefully most of us, none of us will end up in. Um, but you understand that we are going to, under, you know, just have this deeper knowledge and awareness of how much we've rejected the Lord. And we're going to be, um, yeah, just tormented by that forever if we end up in hell. And so then, then we're going through, he's talking about... Um, some of the the dryness, right? So what I was talking about, like the post-conversion, I would warn people at conferences and retreats that after you have this climax, after you hit this, um, you know, uh, this, this, this mountaintop experience that you're having with the Lord, you're going to face usually some spiritual warfare, but at least some dryness because things just kind of normal out. It's like when you get back from your honeymoon and you get into that first year of marriage and things just start to kind of normalize. And you're just in the day-to-day, right? Like somebody's got to wash the dishes. Why, you know, won't he put the the dishes in the, the sink, in the dishwasher? Why does he just leave them in the sink whenever he's <laughs> eating his cereal? Why can't he put them away, right? Why can't, you know, she, um, I don't know, my wife's perfect, so I can't think of any examples. But there's certain things out there that wives do that drive husbands crazy. I just don't know about them, okay? And so you can think about some of these things that people have. This this like day-to-day life when you start to get into these arguments of she's folding my shirts wrong or something like that. I don't know. So you can think of how that works. That's the same thing that goes into your daily prayer life, right? Because you have these people, especially you think about how some of these are beautiful. They can be problematic. I don't know. I don't have a full thought on it yet. 
But even like in some of our conferences, right, we have this beautiful, you know, praise and worship music going, adoration, processions and stuff like this. And then you try to pray in your dorm room or your house afterwards on Tuesday. And it's like, man, this ain't the same. And the devil says to try to take advantage of that. So Screwtape goes on to say, work hard then on the disappointment or anticlimax, which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. And so he says, the enemy allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. Every human endeavor. So that just reinforces what I'm talking about with marriage, a new job, any of that stuff, right? How much does this happen with a new job all the time, right? You think of a new job, it sounds exciting. You have all this change, a new boss or whatever. And then you get into it for a little while and you're like, man, this coworker is kind of annoying. This part of the job kind of sucks. I didn't realize this. This commute's longer than I thought, right? It starts to kind of wear off the newness. And so then he goes on to say, if once they get through this initial dryness successfully, they become much less dependent on emotion, and they're therefore much harder to tempt. When we're not as dependent on emotion, we're much harder to tempt. Think about in today's world with our dopamine addictions and this this idea that we have to always be entertained. This is why so many youth groups and uh, mega churches and things like that, they're always looking for like the next crazy thing they can do. This next conference, this next like rock star performance and light shows and all this kind of stuff. And it's because the devil can't get to this is, you know, I've I've heard people say before that like uh, there's been stories before of like a great saint and he was striving to be the holiest man in the world. And God or an angel revealed to him that the holiest man in the world was like some farmer many miles away that just like prayed and worked all day long. <laughs> it's like that's the man who just goes out and does his duties and prays and spend time with the Lord and is not remotely dependent on emotion. And that man is very hard to tempt and to get away from the Lord. But those of us who constantly ride on this higher, I don't feel God. God's not speaking to me. Well, we're, we're so emotional today that we've just become very, very easy to tempt. And so this is one thing that I really, really loved. He says, all you have to do is keep out of his mind the question, quote, if I, being what I am, can consider that I am in some sense a Christian, why should the different vices of those people in the next pew prove that their religion is mere hypocrisy and convention. Dude, I mean, can you think about that? I mean, talk about the pride that we have in today's world. Who who among us hasn't felt that at some point, right? Where you start to question other people. I've done it. I've been the recipient of, of judgment like this. And I've also judged other people like this, where you see people living a certain type of way, dressing a certain type of way to mass. And you're like, they're Christians or they're Catholics. They're supposed to be Catholics. Catholics don't do this. Catholics don't do that a lot of which can just be preference, right? That's not even actual sin. But even if it is actual sin, we can sit here and know our own sins, right? Our own sins of unchastity, our own sins of dishonesty, our own sins of gossip, our own sins of being, um, you know, harsh with our family and friends or whatever it might be. And then we sit here and look at other people's vices and we, you know, shortcomings and we're like, that doesn't, they are now disqualified for being Catholics or being real Christians because they have these struggles, even though I know my own struggles and I consider myself a Christian. So pride is obviously a great, great tool in the hands of the enemy. And so then he goes on to say, he has not been with anything long enough with the enemy to have any real humility yet. What he says, even on his knees about his own sinfulness is all parrot talk. At bottom, he still believes he has run up a very favorable credit balance in the enemy's ledger by allowing himself to be converted and thinks that he has shown great humility and condescension in going to church with these smug, commonplace neighbors at all. Keep him in that state of mind as long as you can. Some people stay in the state of mind forever. 
and they think of themselves as they have given some gift to God because they've allowed themselves to go to Mass on Sunday. They've allowed themselves to send their kids to Catholic schools, or they've allowed themselves to go on a retreat at college or whatever it is. And now God, in a sense, owes them a favor, right? And they're in his good graces because they've done above and beyond of what other people who they look down upon, their neighbors and, and um, you know, friends or whatever it is, and the way they're raising their children, and at least I'm not doing that, or at least I'm not doing this. And they ignore their own sins within their own heart. Um, something profound that Jason Craig often said, also said to me in our podcast that's coming out in a couple of weeks is he said that external sins, in a sense, can be easier to deal with than internal sins. And so we talk about growing up in a rough neighborhood and how a lot of the sins were external. And so you could kind of see them a little bit easier. But in the suburbs and in upper class communities, a lot of the sins are within the heart and inside and internal. And so on the outside, things look good and great. And we're going to church and we're one big happy Catholic family. But on the inside, it doesn't look so good. Versus on the outside, in the inner cities, you have broken homes and things like that. But he's saying that on the inside, you have a lot of people who do love and cherish and sacrifice for one another and give out of things that they don't have versus giving from their abundance. It's this interesting juxtaposition. There's sins in both places, but they're different. And this is something that I think a lot of us can struggle with as we get deeper into the church, is this idea of judging other people and becoming prideful. And we recognize here through the Screwtape Letters that that's exactly where the devil wants to keep us, thinking that we're better than everybody else because we've allowed God to do X, Y, or Z, or we've done this for him, and now he owes us. We are always in debt to God, and so we should always live our lives as such. Thanks for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you tomorrow.